equally parts excited and exhausted because I haven't stopped working on this thing for the past 12 hours. But it's done and it's completed. I talked to my team about doing this idea, doing a best of series because we've been in uh, audio format for the past three years now. I think we're coming up on like show number 80. And it's New Year's, so we thought we'd do something different. We thought we'd do something special. Instead of bringing on a new guest, we thought we'd return to our old guests, our best shows. So you're going to be hearing from guests from everything, uh, from women's health to kombucha to unleashing your thin to eating for your brain health to C-sections on here. Uh, I think we got medical marijuana, Joel Salton's take on it, uh, living wild in an RV. So it's Definitely a fun show, not a dull moment for sure. Paleohacks.com is the place to be. You can reach me, Clark, at ClarkDanger.com for email. And be sure you go over there and support us on iTunes by leaving a review and a rating over there. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support. I can't wait for what's to come for this show in 2016. All right. Are you ready for the show? I'm ready for you to hear it. Let's go hear what my guests have to say. First clip is Joel Salton. He is the godfather of real food. Owns Polyface Farms in Virginia. He was just on the show about a month ago. And uh, if there's one person to kick off this best of series, it's Joel. So let's go hear what Joel's steps are on how we can turn this system around. What do you recommend? What are your quick, maybe two or three steps or recommendations for the person at home? Yeah. Okay. So, so if we just narrow this down to food, what can you do on food? I've got, I've got three things. Uh, one is get in your kitchen. Uh, you know, the, the most, the most empowering thing you can do is get in your kitchen, learn about food, viscerally participate with it, and 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 start doing it yourself. I mean, the. the you're not going to put MSG in your food. <laughs> you're not going right, right. to put a bunch of junk in your food, right? So, so um, you know, get in your kitchen and 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 cut the feed off of all these processors and big, you know, food adulterators out there. Number two, um, turn off the TV and um, and take your your entertainment budget for the year and spend it finding your food treasures in your area. Every area now has great, great farms that do integrity food, build soil, uh, are doing all the right things. We'll find them and patronize them. Many of them are struggling. If they had three or four more customers, they could quit their town job and be on the farm full time. Be that catalyst. Be that facilitator. Move them forward that direction. And the third thing is do something yourself. It could be as simple as throwing out the gerbil and the cat and getting two pet, you know, two chickens. Eat your kitchen scraps and lay you eggs. Hmm. And yes, this can be done in a condominium. Um, it, it can be as simple as getting a vermicomposting bin under your sink instead of the garbage disposal. It could be it could be a patio garden, you know, where you have a, a pot a pot garden. Yeah, really a pot garden. Um, but you know, where, where you have container gardening, you can have a beehive on the roof. Uh, you know, there, there are lots of things that you can do yourself just to just to uh, enjoy the satisfaction and encouragement of being um, of being a, a a visceral participant in the majesty, the mystery, and the awesomeness of life. Next up, we got Abel James. Cool perspective on connecting with our food, being wild, and uh, connecting with each other. Here it is. The premise is that we all have 
the, the truth about food deep within us. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all know what fresh food is. We all know that when, when you smell it and you truly taste it and it comes from, you know, a, a farmer just a few doors down or uh, in the next town, it's better for you than some random stuff that was, you know, shipped in a tanker from Chile six months ago and then sprayed up with a bunch of wax and chemicals to make it look fresh. Yeah. Um, if you look at where your food comes from, it is gnarly and dark where most of our food comes from right. in America. Right. So it's up to you to really revisit that and, and develop a relationship with your food. Eat it not sucking down a burrito in the front free, front seat of a car on your way to something else, but you know, using food as as a gift if you're cooking for uh, people you love because that's it's one of the most intimate things there is. And uh, also getting people back in touch with the meal because uh, one of the coolest things about like traveling around the world as we've been doing is seeing how different cultures treat their food and their experience of, of mealtime. And I mean, you go to Italy and, and dinner is a far different thing than it is in America. You know, it lasts it's three to five, five times hours. longer. Yeah. It's five <laughs> hours long. It's yeah. this like celebrate. It's Thanksgiving every night. And, uh, yeah. and, and I think, you know, we don't need to do that necessarily. But just knowing that you can every once in a while on a random Tuesday have the best time of your life and eat some really good food, that's, that's what heals you. That's what keeps you away from being obese and sick. Um, it gets to the root of something that's, that's much deeper about all of this. Hmm. Let's spice this up. We're going to Hannah Kroom now to talk about kombucha and gut health. Give us a history on kombucha. You know, kombucha has been handed down for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. You know, it's really hard going back and researching all this information, trying to suss out the little nuances. But definitely, was there like a big culture that did it that it came from? Well, a lot of people think it's Chinese in origin, and that makes a lot of sense because it's tea, and that's where tea came from. Tea's been around uh, five thousand some odd years, um, and so it makes a lot of sense that it would come from that type of culture. Now, the Russians really ran with it, and uh, they have a very long history with kombucha as well, but many Russians will say, oh, it came from Japan or it came from China. So there's certainly an Asian connection. And uh, we just hope that as we continue to learn more about it, that, you know, maybe we'll find out and maybe we won't and maybe it doesn't even matter. But to speak to why it's popular now, I think the real reason is we need it. We live in a very toxic world. We have uh, air pollution, water pollution, food pollution. I mean, we are poisoning everything as quickly as we can, including our bodies, and we are becoming the canaries in the coal mine. Uh, the autoimmune disease, the the dysbiosis, um, even the amount of uh, prescription drugs that people take today is a direct result of the fact that we are our bodies are freaking out and saying, "Hey, quit poisoning me already." Yep. Uh, set it up very basically 101. What does someone need to get started brewing kombucha today? All right, I got a little jingle for you. Can I can I launch into that? Sing it up. <coughs> All right, kombucha tea, easy as one, two, three. Brew some tea, add a scoby, wait a week, and then repeat. You are in LA, aren't you? <laughs> well, it's more I like, you know. Beautiful voice. That was, that was nice. We are living in a bacterial world, and I am a bacterial girl. 
what does that bacteria do once it's in your body and more specifically in your gut? Sure. So um, as we mentioned, we are all bacteria-powered organisms. And what that means is that bacteria play such an integral role in our ability to absorb nutrition, to break down our food products. I mean, they are the ones helping us with digestion. They're the ones pulling the nutrition, the enzymes. They're catalyzing all of the metabolic reactions that need to occur as a result of putting nutritional inputs in our body, right? Because why do we eat? We think it's because it's fun and entertaining, but really it's because our body needs certain, certain inputs in order to optimally function. So bacteria help us with that process. And then they also help us There's a concept I like to talk about called isopathy that comes from the Greek, and it means like controls like. So the way we think about that, like in homeopathy, they think about it where, you know, plants taking uh, plants and certain properties that will stimulate a healing reaction. So something is is healing something. In Chinese medicine, we see that like, oh, if you eat the eyes of the fish, that's good for the eyes and the human. So like helping like. In terms of bacteria, the way we think about it is that you have good bacteria that help keep bad bacteria in check. I mean, think about it from a logical perspective. If pathogens were really so great at what they did, we'd all be dead. (laughs) So clearly there's some kind of defense system, some defense mechanism that's working where they're not able to succeed or there wouldn't be any life on this planet. And that goes, you know, pathogenic people, pathogenic thought processes, pathogenic anything. You always want to be combating that with something that is putting that back into balance, back into check. So that's what the bacteria and the yeast in kombucha do is they put those healthy bacteria, those healthy acids, they reset the pH, they get your gut into the pH that it needs to be for digestion to occur for you to be able to extract the nutrition from your food and then it boosts your immunity um, and it also creates healthy acids that help support healthy liver functioning. I think it's no surprise that the liver has the word live in it because we really need that vital organ to be functioning optimally for our bodies to feel really good. Perfect segue into the next guest. This might be my favorite clip of this show. Uh, You ready to get your mind blown about cesarean section and if you are actually born healthy or if you are born sick. Let's talk about those hundred trillion bacteria we got down there or just all all over us for that matter. Uh, How does it get messed up? Are are we just born messed up and we got to fix it? Because I'd assume we were born pretty good and and then things get a little... Uh, That's a very good question. And uh, we are not all born okay and then it gets messed up. Uh, about a third of American children go through a specific process where they are born without a microbiome. Think about that. Hmm. And the process is called cesarean section. So that we obtain our original priming uh, microbial baptism when we pass through the birth canal. Hmm. The vaginal birth canal is loaded with healthy, good bacteria that then inoculates the newborn with a a starter kit of bacteria that allow that child's immune system to develop in a very balanced way, allow that newborn to break down mother's milk uh, and extract nutrients, etc. When a child is born by cesarean section, uh, he or she is deprived of that really important inoculation. And it is now thought that this is the reason that being born by C-section is associated with an increased risk, a twofold increased risk of autism, a threefold increased risk of ADHD, a significant increased risk of, of uh, type 1 diabetes, celiac disease, food allergy, and even becoming obese as an adult. 50% increased risk 
for becoming obese as, as an adult just because of cesarean section. Wow. Now, are, the, for, are those on the rise too? Are they something that's more well, popular? I, they're right now leveled off at 33% of all births in America, which is breathtaking. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to imagine that 33%, one third of all births in America are complicated enough to require that procedure. Now, to be clear and to be fair, uh, there is a time and a place where a C-section is life-saving uh, for mother or baby. It's, it's really important that we emphasize that there is a time and a place. It's a great procedure. But it's hard to imagine that a third of all births in America should be are complicated enough that they require oh. a, a C-section because there are lifelong consequences in terms of that baby's health for the rest of his or her life that are imparted by that procedure. So is it that it's just exposed to bacteria for that short period of time, or is it that it's a very concentrated amount coming out of the vaginal birth canal that it can only get exposed to during that one time? Or Well, you have to understand that this event of creating a new living organism is very, very complex. And there are factors from conception onward that are all refined and have evolved or have been created, however you want to look at it, to create, to create a being that will have its best chance of survival. So this transfer of material, of information, if you will, this horizontal transfer of information that takes place when a baby is born by giving this child genetic material. Basically, you have to think of it that way, that you're giving this child uh, thousands and thousands of genes, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of bits of DNA that he or she won't get if he or she is born by C-section. So again, as I mentioned earlier, 99% of the DNA in our body is bacterial. So this is a huge lateral transfer, tra- horizontal transfer of information that is, is designed or has evolved, however you want to look at it, uh, to ensure the best chance of survival for that organism. And this is a process, this transfer of information at the moment of birth that is seen in all mammals, every animal that passes through the birth canal. It's seen in birds, it's seen in fish, it's seen in uh, insects, it's seen in uh, clams, oysters, and even sponges. So we're talking about Hmm. millions and millions of years that this process of using bacteria to transfer information that is the most up-to-date signaling system, uh, giving that newborn up-to-date information as to what environment to expect. Let me explain that for just a moment. Because the, the, the bacteria living within mother's birth canal uh, change. They change based upon her food availability, the season of the year that that baby is, uh, is born in, and all kinds of other environmental issues that shape that gut bacteria so that the final marching orders that mother is able to impart on her baby are given at that moment just before or at the moment of birth. So we're just beginning to understand that we have a, uh, um, a vertical transmission of genetic material down from mother and father, 23,000 genes, and we have this horizontal transfer of genetic information in the form of bacteria that happens through this mechanism of passing through the birth canal and gaining those bacteria to your microbiome where they serve as, as virtually a cloud, like the cloud for um, your, your, internet, your, uh, your 
digital information that that child will refer to for information for the rest of his or her life. That's a pretty compelling thought, isn't it? Pretty compelling indeed. Lauren Cordain's up next with a simple definition of paleo. The ability to actually start a fire whenever and wherever you wanted uh, is a recent phenomenon, probably dating back to 50 to 75,000 years ago. Now, that may sound like it's historically remote, but let me just give you, uh, for instance, if we look at the time our genus Homo has been on the planet, two and a half million years, then the ability to start a fire came somewhere about 30 to 45 minutes to midnight. So we basically (laughs) went through the entire 24-hour day without being able to start fires. Yeah. So if you want to draw a line in the sand on what is and what is not paleo, let's uh, go back before fire. Let's keep going on. What is paleo? Let's go on the simplicity. I pulled a clip from Johnny Bodwin's first call. I think it's episode number four. Talk about paleo. I recorded this one when I was living on a farm in Hawaii. So the audio is terrible. I realize that. But the information is golden. Here's Johnny Baldwin on the four food groups you should eat. I am actually a big believer in kind of a big tent that, you know, that we don't need to have these ridiculous battles over tiny differences in theory or philosophy. You know, Lauren Cordain's paleo version versus Rob's version. Who cares? <laughs> They're all great. They're all great. And so is, you know, right. we're, we're basically talking the same thing. You want to take beans out because of the lectins? Fine. You want to put them in because I don't care. <laughs> what we're all talking about, the big battles are stay out of McDonald's. Stop with the cereals. Stop with the breads and the pastas and the rice and the potatoes and all that crap. You want to make little tiny distinctions between paleo one and paleo two and unleash. It's fine. That's not the real issue. The real issue is you want to eat. I call them the Johnny Bowden four food groups. You can call foods you could hunt, fish, gather, or pluck. It's real simple. Like Robert Crayon used to say, the great nutritionist, he was my mentor, he used to say, ask yourself if you were naked on the African savanna with a stick, what could you eat? What could you catch or pluck or stab or that's that's the bullseye of food and you know the the thing is the the paleolithic uh, our paleolithic ancestors our caveman ancestors they didn't have to worry about calories they didn't have to worry about the percent of calories fat or protein or carbohydrates they ate what was around and what was in season and what was local and what they could catch or what they could fish or what they could pluck or what they could gather off the ground and it was just fine and if we can go back to something like that we don't have to worry about this in moderation and that in moderation because, mm. you know, we will be eating the foods that nurture us and fuel us. Now, the other part of that is how do we resist the enormous temptations to eat food products, to eat stuff with barcodes, to eat all the stuff you guys probably eat very little of? How do we ignore those temptations? And the answer is in reprogramming some of our brains, some of, you know, in, in We have a a part of the program called the Craving Crusher Guide, and and it's a series of exercises that you do at home, you know, where you really delve into, like, what are your associations to these foods, and what can you, and we give you specific things that you can do. And, yes, it takes a little bit of time. It doesn't happen overnight, but you can literally kind of unplug those things from having that automatic, overwhelming reaction that you can't resist. You can do that. 
you've got to fight the big battles. In, and in health and nutrition, God knows we've got some big battles. Oh. We've got moronic health organizations who are continually to t- tell us to eat all of this processed crap. The American Diabetes Association say, oh, yeah, you, you can eat lots of high-carb food. You just need a little bit more insulin. In your, you, we've <laughs> got such bad advice. Yeah. It's all contaminated by, you know, very big uh, industrial um, you know, a, a special interest, and I, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, there are a lot of, the USDA has two mandates. One is to educate the United States population about nutrition, but the other is to sell products and create markets for agriculture. So those are kind of two things that are at odds. You yeah. know, if you want to tell the truth about what we're eating, you say stop eating wheat and corn and soy and sugar, and if you want to create markets, you subsidize those four things, and that's exactly what we've got with the USDA. So we've got a lot of contradictory information out there. Um, but, but the point is, um, if, if, you, if you can stick to a kind of paleotype eating plan, and that's pretty much what we do in Unleash It, and there's nothing in there that, that the paleo world would be, you know, would look askance at unless they wanted to do battle over very minor things, as you say. Um, you've got to fight the big battles, and the big battles are not whether or not you should have, you know, whether or not some exotic berry from the Brazilian rainforest has more antioxidants than blueberries. The, the, the real battles are, how many meals are you eating at McDonald's, dude? I mean, I, go to, <laughs> I hear these people with their multi-level marketing and their juices and their $40 a bottle, you know, mangosteen and this and that, and it's going to cure cancer. And meanwhile, they're 50 pounds overweight, they don't exercise, and they eat them weeks of fast foods. So, like, what's the big battle? Mm. Let's not have these battles over the minors. Yeah. Let's talk about the real things that make huge differences. The Majoring over the minors. Huge, huge point this year we got on the show. Next guest is going on that, Dr. Jade Tita. We're going to talk about what it means to be a diet detective. Here he is. That. What was kind of the biggest shocker you learned throughout the 25 years you've been doing this? What's the one thing that comes to mind that you're still surprised by to this day? I think it's a very astute uh, thing to point out that people really need to get. And to me, it's this idea, and I call it program jumping or program ADD. We, are, we almost act like, you know, and this is a little bit tough love in here, and you know, so I apologize if it feels like I'm lecturing people. I'm really not. I just think because I'm the same. We're all human, so I have some of these tendencies as well because our human brains do this. But we love, we act, almost act like children. We chase the new shiny object, the new shiny workout program, the new shiny diet. And we think very wrongly that there's a diet out there somewhere that's going to deliver us the holy grail, the right diet for everybody. And what I'm trying to say is that that does not exist. And by jumping from program to program to program to program and acting like a child almost with this program ADD, ADHD, I think it's exactly what you're talking about. That's the main reason why people don't get results. I call it the dieting mentality. It's really the idea that these people, and when I say these people, I mean me too, because I've certainly fallen prey to this at times in my life basically have this idea of they would rather be looking for something to do than doing something. They'd rather be looking for something to do than doing something. Actually, psychology research tells us, doesn't it? It's basically like humans have this very weird quirk about our brain. As soon as we find something that works, we promptly want to go and look for something else that works. It's just partly how our psychology works. And so what I would say is the fix to this for people is to stop being a dieter And I like to say, start being a detective instead. 
of your own metabolism. Figure out how this stuff works. Sure, you're going to pick up some things from Clark. You're going to pick up some things from me. You're going to pick up some things from all the books you read. So it's not that we don't want you to educate yourself. It's just that uh, do what Bruce Lee said, right? My favorite, one of my favorite heroes is Bruce Lee. And he said, listen, take what is useful, discard what is not, and add what is uniquely your own. And this is how we should be approaching weight loss, in my opinion. Yes, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Um, my name is Clark, and I'm a diet detective. Just uh, curious if this information is useful to me. All right, enough fun. Let's go to Tom O'Brien on gluten sensitivities. Again, another Hawaii call. Not the greatest audio, but talk about information. I wanted to. I was tempted to use this whole show on the best of series. I mean, it's, it was hard distilling down 45 minutes into four minutes for this show. So if you haven't heard it, I think it's number four, go back and listen to it. But here's Dr. Tom O'Brien on gluten intolerance. The wheat of today, what you were saying is kind of the mutated gluten form. I just know from my readings that it's, it's gone through mutations. So when someone comes up to you, I'm sure you get this question a lot. When someone comes up to you and asks you, well, wheat's not bad. It says so in ancient historical texts like the Bible that, you know, like Jesus is the bread of life and they're referencing it in ancient texts. What do you say to that person? That's a really good question. And that's a great, great question because if a person really listens to the answer, we've got them. Yeah. <laughs> you got them. Yeah. Because here's the answer. No one on the planet is eating the bread that Jesus Christ ate. Stop using that as an excuse. The bread's been changed. It's mutated. It's called the 50-50 rule. In the last 50 years, gluten content in wheat has gone up by over 50%. So no one on the planet is eating the bread that Jesus Christ ate. It's just not possible to get it. So uh, if a, an infant or a toddler was introduced to that bread that Jesus Christ ate to begin with, if they were eating that bread, there's a likely chance they wouldn't have a problem with gluten in their lives if that's all the bread that they ate. But when you've eaten regular bread that's on our planet today, you can't go back and eat einkorn bread thinking it's going to be okay because the protein structure is so close to the breads of today that the immune system will not know the difference. Earlier we were talking about non-celiac related uh, gluten sensitivity versus celiac related gluten sensitivity. What's the difference between the two? Celiac is uh, your, your intestines are a tube from the mouth to the other end, about 20, 25 feet long. The inside of the tube is lined with shag carpeting. One shag is where calcium is absorbed, another shag magnesium, another shag proteins, another shag fats. All the shags absorb different nutrients. Celiac disease is when your shags wear down and you got Berber. And when you've got Berber, you don't absorb calcium. You get osteoporosis. Um, you, you get malabsorption. You don't absorb your vitamins and minerals. So celiac disease was the, the first test that ever came out to look to see about the impact of gluten. They stuck a tube down the throat and they looked at the intestines in the 1950s. It's called an endoscopy. And they snip out a little bit of the tissue. They look at it under a microscope, and they saw that the shags were all worn down. They take people off of wheat, and they do it again a few months later, and they see the shags have grown back. 
They give them the wheat again, wait a few months, and the shags are gone again. So they identified wheat sensitivity as a disease of the gut, and they called it celiac disease. If the first test they had done was to put a tube up the carotid artery to go into the brain, they would have thought that gluten sensitivity is a brain disease because they would have seen all the damage up in the brain. But the first test they did was going down into the gut. So they think it's a gut disease. Celiac disease is the disease of the gut when gluten is a problem. There are other diseases in the gut besides the wearing down of the shags, but celiac disease is where all the focus was for close to 30 years. And our doctors studied with blinders, thinking that's it. If your shags aren't worn down, you don't have a problem. Well, now we know that that was um, uh, uh, the thinking of the day with the equipment they had to study with. Now there's no question that that's archaic and outdated. Uh, it, It may be a disease of the gut. It certainly may be, but gluten can be a disease of the brain Hmm. or of the kidneys or of the lung. Yeah. It's affecting the gut, causing the wearing down of the shags. That's celiac disease. If it's affecting any other tissue, it's non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Which is the one to eight ratio we were talking about earlier, correct? Correct. Okay. Okay. So this is making sense. So that one out of the eight has it in the gut, but those other eight have it somewhere else. And that's why a lot of the times you can come back negative on a typical gluten test. Correct. Okay. This is full circle now. This is good. (laughs) So let's talk about leaky gut then. First, what is leaky gut syndrome for our newcomers out there? Good. The shags in your intestines are where we absorb all of our vitamins and minerals. And the, the food has to be broken down into really, really tiny particles. The shags are covered by cheesecloth. And if you remember your grandmother making gravy, she poured the gravy in the cheesecloth, and only the liquid comes through, and all the clumps stay on the other side, right? Mm-hmm. So cheesecloth covering your shags only lets certain size molecules get through to get into the bloodstream. And the bigger molecules can't get through. The leaky gut, and the technical term is intestinal permeability, is when you get tears in the cheesecloth. And you get bigger molecules going through. They're called macromolecules, big molecules. They get into your bloodstream and your brain says, whoa, what's this? This is not something I can use to make new muscle or make new nerve hormones or brain hormones. I better fight this. And you, and you general, you know our general gluten, you general, you know our general beef, you general, you general tomatoes. Because these foods start getting in through the torn cheesecloth before there's been enough time for them to be broken down into tiny little particles. They're macromolecules. Mm. These are the people that are allergic to 15 and 20, 25 different foods. It's because they've got a leaky gut. And, and so they only eat the foods that they're not allergic to. And six months later, they're allergic to those foods. And they feel hopeless about it. Well, you just need to heal the gut. And then you're allergic to a couple of foods, maybe. So this gluten can promote this, like we were talking about earlier, just because of how mutated it's gotten and the the protein has enlarged and we can no longer break it down? There are two primary triggers that are very, very common in causing tears of the cheesecloth. One is gluten. The other is lipopolysaccharides. 
which is remnants of gram-negative bacteria in the gut. But today's talk is about gluten. So gluten causes the tears in the cheesecloth, causes the macromolecules to get through into the bloodstream, triggers the brain to tell the immune system to fight that macromolecule, triggers the immune response to so many different foods that triggers the symptoms that people walk in with and they say, I get migraines. And what, they're, what doctors are doing are treating the migraines. Well, it, it's helpful to help people feel better, but you got to treat the trigger that's causing the problem. Or else people get addicted to the migraine medication. It's the only way they get relief. And then the problem's going to manifest itself somewhere else. Maybe it's joint pain. Maybe it's skin problems. Maybe it's uh, uh, bladder disease. Who knows? It's like half frustration, half angry rant, but mostly passion. God, I love that. I love that call. It's like, uh, ah, these people don't understand gluten. Hey, Tom, you're welcome back anytime on this show. We loved having you. Your information is spot on. It's killer. I think he did the gluten summit, which was also killer. I, I reviewed a couple calls from that. Let's go to Katie Bowman. She's going to talk about what it's, what it means to be a human living in captivity. And one thing that stuck out to me right off the bat from this book and Move Your DNA was uh, what you just brought up there in that response. And it is um, the schools in captivity, you know, or the, the animals in captivity and what can we learn from them in the zoo or in the aquarium or whatever. And uh, you compare it to the movie Blackfish, which is number one on Netflix documentaries. Um, it's been there forever. And I, I mean, I love that thing. I almost cried. It's just so well done. Um, you and, almost cried. Yeah, I almost did. I sucked it up a little bit. You know, I, I, I was watching it with some, uh, lady friends in the room, so I couldn't, I mean, maybe that would have earned me points. Yeah. You went the, you went the wrong way with that one. I should have let it cried. Okay. <laughs> totally. All right. Next time, next time I'll, I'll let it cry. Pretend I didn't see it. Um, and so, you know, it's just such a moving uh, documentary it's so well done but it's you know it's all about the orcas in captivity and kind of what they do and how it affects them so how is that kind of like how we are to, in this modern day well i focus on i focus on specifically the collapse of the dorsal fin in in the male so if you look at that movie you can see tilikum he's a good example or if anyone has not seen that movie if you just go to your computer and google Tilicum, you'll see a picture of what I mean. So their dorsal fins are are flopped over, and it's rigid. It was soft at one time. So um, softening of the dorsal fin is a completely natural phase of life as it's as it's growing. You know, in in whale puberty. So um, packaged as things in nature tend to be, packaged with this softening because it's going through lots of growing is, you know, what we consider like extreme swimming, right? So in all, all orcas in general are, are, are already swimming a hundred miles a day. They're swimming yeah. at depths. They're, they're, it's their foraging behavior. It'd be the same thing as what a human goes out and, and does if, if there were no food in your refrigerator, if you had none of the things that you would have, the way that you would be moving would be creating a particular mechanical environment. So whales, in captivity outside of that mechanical environment, their structures, which don't come with like in the fin, there's no muscle, there's no, there's no bone through the fin. It's completely a soft tissue. However, as that soft tissue is forming, the water itself, the forces generated by how a whale swims keeps it upright. And, um, so that's, 
that's really what the book is about is that we ourselves, you know, we all cry watching these whales in captivity, ironically, not seeing Mm. our own collapsed fins because everyone is in the tank together. And so because everyone is in the tank, including the scientists who research body structure, you know, it's, it's like asking a whale within the tank to, to figure out why it's, why its fin is flopping over, but it has no idea of a life outside the tank, which is different than Tilikum, who did have time out and then came in. Does a fish know it's in water? Really philosophical, Katie. I like it. Um, man, you know, you know what? I'm just going to do this. I, I wasn't planning on playing the next couple clips, but Katie Bowman's show was so so good. She's come on here twice that uh, I'm going to play a longer clip. The longest one of this show. It's going to be about 10 minutes and it's going to take us up until about 48 minutes. So if you're in a rush and I I don't know, you can skip it, but I, I put it in here for a reason. It's talking about casts and clothing and bikinis and underwear. Here's Katie Bowman. People magazine level prescription. And I hate to bag on People Magazine, but you know. Yeah, gotta, it love, is what gotta it is. love a good article on Katy Perry. I'm telling I, you. How else would I know what bikini everyone is wearing <laughs> I if know. I didn't have People Magazine? Me too. Me too. Same with uh same with the bras and the spanks and sucking it in, which is the next point um I really wanted to get get at you with is you know, in the book you talk about kind of um restrictive clothing and anything that kind of holds you in and, and and makes it look all nice and together in there when maybe it's spilling out a little places. Um, why would that be necessarily bad over a long period of time if I'm wearing some Spanx? Are you wearing Spanx right now? No, I'm, um, I, I normally go for boxer briefs, though. That I like the, the snug feeling. Okay. All right. That's good. That's a lot of information, but that's good that I know that. Okay. So as you know, move your DNA is not just about, or when I talk about natural movement, I don't just mean the exercises that you do or do not do with your body or the way that you're moving your body relative to the ground, that there's this whole other component of natural movements. And, and so, you know, you, you brought up boxer briefs. So you're talking about, okay, what's my normal testicular movement? What's the load essentially that my balls would be feeling all the time? And how does my underwear affect that in that same way? What about boobs and bras? Like what, what are, what are the loads that the cells in those areas would naturally be under and how are they changed by things like clothing? So even before we talk about Spanx, we talk about stuff that everyone wears. So instead of talking about something that almost nobody wears, I go with underwear because almost everyone right now is listening with underwear except for that person who has moved out into nature and lives by themselves without a roof. That person has probably given up underwear, I hope. Long time ago, you probably did, yeah. Yeah, and you said freak of nature, but maybe those are the freaks in nature. Yeah, probably a better word for them. Right, those are freaks in nature. Yeah, they're they're freeballing though. So (laughs) um, what do they know that we don't? Well, you'll have to do a test of one. (laughs) Take your underwear off for the next week and you call me and you tell me what you know then oh, that you did goodness. not know right now. So there's that. And then there's things like spank. So we just, we're just not thinking. We're not thinking in terms of our 
cells being important structures. But if you put a belt around your waist every single yes. every single day, what do you think happens to the pressure of those environments? And and when you change pressures arbitrarily based on something like a belt that has nothing really to do with biology, but has to do with fashionology or or whatever else. I don't know. Gotta look um, good. Yeah, right. Um that that you have to put that in when you have an illness, you have to put that in to the equivalent of an input that's in all the time. So if you come to me and you're like, I've got this health problem, it's like, oh, I noticed that you were taking 17,000 milligrams of vitamin D yeah. and now you have liver failure. It's the same thing. It's like, oh, I know that you are consuming 17,000 inputs of high intra-abdominal pressure. So that's why you have a hiatal hernia or an inguinal hernia, because if you're going to push on your pressure cavity all the time, the pressure has to go somewhere. It doesn't, you don't live in a vacuum. If you're going to push on something, it pushes on something else, which pushes on something else, which pushes on something else until a structure fails Yeah. or the pressure goes into another place. So, and pushing something like your intestines into your thoracic cavity, which happens a lot. And yet no one would ever say, you need to stop wearing a belt. You need to stop sucking in your stomach, etc. You need to stop wearing Spanx, whatever, because no one is busy considering the mechanical environment because no one is really trained in mechanics. Okay. So my brother works at this um, fashion outlet kind of a magazine, really. And, they're, you know, they're really high-end fashion. They're on, on the latest trends. And one of the trends going on right now is... Japanese raw denim and it's this really thick material really nice um it's big in menswear and so he got me a pair of those for my birthday um and they're they're really nice they're they're super thick but they're pretty tight because I'm a I'm a more athletic bodybuilder style build um and so in the legs and the thighs and everywhere around there, they're super tight and restrictive. And I can literally feel them throughout the day when I walk that they're restricting my movement. Um, and it's kind of, I mean, I don't know if I should give them up or it sounds like what you're saying is I should ditch them all together. But, you know, there's kind of that sunk costs in there and that they were a gift and stuff. But what would that be doing to me over time if it's, you know, just totally restricting my movement because it's tight and hard to move in? Well, I mean, that's a thing that's a thing that no one really knows yet because I mean, just with the recent understanding of a of a mechanical environment affecting genetic expression, it's going to take 30 to 40 years before they figure out, you know, what exactly everything does. But if you look at the diseases of mechanotransduction, then you just kind of look around in that area. I mean, as far as what goes around your waist, that's probably what most is most understood at the level of, um, at the most basic level of digestion, you know, digestion, um, pelvic, anything, anything in the gut, you know, yeah. type area. But then also if you're having something just above or just below the gut, right? So pelvic or thoracic, that that could be from the pressure around the gut. And, mm. and so like, as far as that goes, around the waist as, as far as circulation down the leg or it's not even it's more about how do those cells respond to being squashed and if you're wearing those pants if you're varying it up i mean cells your your body is pretty adaptable adaptable it's just it's the high frequency input so if you're only wearing can i call them skinny jeans is yeah, that what they really it. are yeah, is that pretty, what they are they're pretty you, skinny I'd you like used the international so. you said international like you're like these are like these japanese inter international Raw structure denim, thing yeah they're skinny jeans, right? Yeah, pretty much. You know what? 
It's all about the karate pants. Okay. I got to transition to those. You're going to have to find some karate pants. Well, I have those ones. To balance it out. You know? Yeah, the, the super breathable ones that are real comfortable and they're like this nice brown. Yeah, 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 yeah those. Um, well, what about yoga pants, though? Are those yay or nay? Yeah, it's just all about, it's just all about, are they pushing or pulling on your cells? How much are they pushing and pulling on your cells? Okay. So what about like the super tight yoga pants then? You know, are those, um, since they're so stretchable and and breathable, I guess, are they better or worse or should they go looser or kind of what's the deal? Well, I guess it depends on like like yoga pants the the pants like a uh, stretch pants you know then the, the yeah. nice thing about stretch pants is um they unlike karate pants wouldn't get caught on things which is another way of limiting your motion so there's many different ways that clothing can limit motion it could be on the cellular level but it could also be on the structural level like important when you're dressing your kids it's like is the outfit that i'm putting my child in something that is limiting their ability to reach one leg away from each other or would get caught up as they're trying to climb on something, which eventually discourages them from climbing. So there could be just the cellular experience of the pressure of a garment, but also if you get too baggy of a garment, that it then affects the larger motions of the joints. So I think you're just looking for you're looking to reduce those things that are clear to you that are interfering with your health. So not everyone wants to transition to suspenders like my husband did, but he was having a lot of bathrooming um, pelvic kind of gut issues. Yeah. Like just gas, you know, like, you know, sorry, hon, but like that's what he was like. And for years, and then he just realized just one day he just tuned into that he was straining his abdomen against his belt. He could feel that he was contracting a muscle in response to try to keep his pants up. And then he was like, oh, I just, I just never recognized basically a force that I have been generating mm. for 30 years. Well, I'd imagine it'd be kind of similar. Um, the image that just popped into my mind is like, if you sprain your leg or break your bone, they put you in what they put you in a cast and it restricts your motion. So it, um, so you can't move. And so it heals that way. But I guess if we're not broken and our abdomens aren't totally busted, well, if we put ourselves in kind of that tight, limited range cast, if you will, um, it's going to restrict our motion. It's going to adapt to whatever load we we uh, impact upon itself. Yeah, and if you want to talk about casts, just a, a quick list of casts, if I may. may go for I? it. Yeah, go for it. Your clothing, right? So your clothing is casts. The ground is a cast because it's flat and level, which means it doesn't allow all the parts that would move. Were it not flat and level, it prevents those from moving. So the ground is a cast. Unnatural terrain is a cast. Your computer screen is a cast because it's a fixed distance, you know, from your eye. But then the house, the wall that you live in, that's also a second cast because it prevents you from looking at all these other distances. And then you've got the cast of of shoes, you know, that you wear upon your feet. Your chair is a cast. These are all things that we do every single day almost continuously all day long that your body adapts to, which means when you adapt to a cast, if you've ever put a cast on, right? If you broke something and you put a cast on, when you take the cast off, what's happened is you've actually changed your mass distribution to make being in that cast easier on your body too. Because if you're still 
in a particular area, your body doesn't maintain the structure that was there before that allowed for movement because it'd be a waste energetically, metabolically speaking. It's a waste of energy. So your body consumes the mass, the tiny pieces of mass, the sarcomeres within your muscle get get cannibalized and they go away. Um, You lose um, capillaries that were there to feed those. So you become less. And once you get out of that cast, what happens is if your mind has also really become less because the tissues that used to be there to monitor that those motions are no longer there. They're there, but they're they're not functioning. And so um, a friend of mine uses a really great example. Like if you take a baby elephant and you tie up its back legs from the day that it was born, when you take that tie off two years later, it has no idea that it was tied up. It just moves in the way that it adapted to this situation. It doesn't go, wow, finally those are off and I'm going to start exploring all of this territory that wasn't made available to me. Your mind has adjusted Mm. to the scenario. And so it's because we are casted by essentially this tank that we are all swimming around on, the amount of motion that is available to you in the natural, you know, world compared to what is available to you now, even as you've stripped away things, will never occur to you unless you have sort of protocol for you to explore it. And so that's what I've tried to do is go, here's a protocol for you to start exploring to recognize what types of movements you should be able to, you should have done and you should be able to do. And here's, you know, what I think will help get you closer there. So this next clip is back to Joel Salatin. And we're going to be talking about marijuana, hemp. And I was really curious to get his take on this since it's a new uh, topic, really, in the last couple of years here in the United States with the legalization of it. I was really curious to get his perspective on it from an agricultural standpoint. What does it look like for farmers, people who are in the business? And what does he think about it? So here he is, Joel Salton, talking about marijuana. Joel, one thing that's going around right now in America, and clearly you're very opinionated and very educated and you have a lot of backing, and I really want your take on it, is the legalization of medical marijuana. I mean, that's a type of farming now that you're seeing entrepreneurship. Time magazines project that there'll be billionaires there. Um, do, you, do you think that's good for farming and agriculture? Like, What's just your general opinion on, on what's going on with that in America? Well, anybody that knows me knows knows that I'm not being satirical when I say, well, I would be in favor of legalizing everything. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, from methamphetamines to, to whatever. Uh, I think when the government gets between my lips and my throat, that's an invasion of privacy. Hmm. And so, I, I think I think that essentially allowing now 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 you know, before somebody flips out, I'm also not in favor of of uh, national health care that will take care of people when they when they shoot their brains out okay yeah. so so you know a part of I, i'm for freedom but part of but part of what makes freedom work is the responsibility that you personally engender for your decisions and that's how that's how you get then freedom with you know with constraints and and so i am in favor of of all the hemp um all the hemp that can be grown. I mean, the fact that currently, it's, you know, in uh, since the turn of the century, since uh, since hemp production was outlawed, 
uh, the fact that the U.S. has had to buy all of its rope, all of its fiber from foreign countries, and farmers couldn't enjoy hmm. the um, you know the value of that. You know, and Henry Henry Ford made a hip car. Uh, it was cheaper than steel, lighter than steel, stronger than steel. But we don't have hemp cars, which would all be, you know, much. It'd be basically, you're making you're making a car out of sunlight, okay? Right. Much much better than mining steel, but we can't do it because hemp is illegal. And so, uh, so I'm a fan of anything uh, that that releases farmers and releases the culture to be able to explore the, you know, the the meets and bounds of of our own. our own innovation. To end this call, I want to return to Samantha Gladish, her third time on. She shared a story, which I'm about to play for you, about a client she had who had been struggling for 20 or 30 years to lose weight and was finally able to do it. And I'm ending the show with this call because I think a lot of us have internal struggles, whether it be in health, life, relationships, finances that we struggle with. And when we're finally able to overcome them, our life changes. So this call is about the end result of what happens when we persevere. And it's not about how many times you try to diet. It's not about how many times you try to exercise. The past doesn't matter. It's about where you want to go and what you want to achieve. And you can do it this 2016 if you want to. Phenomenal. I have a really great story on on my website and a great before and after of one of my clients. I mean, I have tons of before and afters. I have to actually get up there and post them. What did she do? <laughs> that client? Um, well, she's um, she has lost close to 60 pounds since um, January. Hmm. And um, she normalized her blood pressure and she got off blood pressure medication and she is down to one diabetic medication from like three. Wow. And before that, had she been trying to lose a lot of weight? Oh, yes. She was definitely, um, she was struggling for a really long time. And, you know, even her backstory, which I don't think I shared much about on my website, but it's just an interesting, like powerful story of a woman who like, she happened to get in like two car accidents and, you know, a span of a few years, her body started to just like really break down on her. The doctor was like putting her on so many medications and the antidepressants. And then because of all the medications, she started to gain a lot of weight and, you know, went through like this big divorce and then a single mother of two. And then now she's just like really taking control of her life. You know, she's losing the weight off her medications and she's just like, She's a new person. It's phenomenal. Yeah. I think one of the biggest challenges with weight loss, and um, I know a lot of women struggle with their weight. Uh, I have close family members. It is just that being so defeated by previous times, you've tried to lose the weight. And then you come back and you try it again. You get motivated. Maybe New Year's comes around or maybe a new book and you get motivated again and then it just doesn't work. And uh, so what's your tips then on... Um, if someone maybe has tried to lose 10, 20, 30, 50, 60 pounds mm-hmm. before and they feel like they're doing the right stuff, but it's just not working, what, right. what, what, speak to that person. So, I mean, that's a great question because I think that so often 
people have these um, short-term goals of like, oh, I have a wedding coming up. I need to lose weight. Or I'm going to the beach and I need to lose weight. And so they don't really have this deep sort of like soul quenching, life changing goal that's really going to change everything for them. Right. So for example, um, the one client I was just speaking about, like her big goal is to get off of medication. She doesn't want to be like ruled by like the pharmaceutical industry. She feels so controlled by them. And she also has two daughters and wants to be, you know, this leading example for them. And like, that's a, that's a powerful clear vision, right? So a lot of people just come to me and they're just like, oh yeah, I just want to, you know, I just need to lose some weight. Like I got my wedding coming up or we're going to a beach in a few months. And I'm just like, well, then what you go to the beach and then you just gorge and gain it all back. Like this is about lifestyle. So I often tell people that, you know, let's talk about the predictability of your health versus the possibility And like, let's really look at that. So the predictability is while you can just stay the same and be miserable and feel shamed and, you know, not want to look in the mirror every day and not want to build these amazing relationships in your life because you're so conscious of how you look and, you know, you're hiding in the kitchen and binging on food. Like that's predictable and more weight coming on and more medication, right? That's the predictable health versus let's look at what's really possible for Mm -hmm. your life. And, you know, that's having the weight come off and feeling more confident and, you know, being this, this motivator and inspiring others in your life. And, you know, so it's just, I think the predictability versus the possibility, that's really something that people should, should really look at. Yeah, that's really, that's really powerful because I think a lot of times people have a hard time envisioning the future better than it is. And when you're able to kind of visualize yourself with 30 pounds off right. in the future, it's able to, you're able to really match the actions in the present. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, I think people should really ask themselves, like, what does losing the weight mean, you know, mean for me? Like, what can that actually do for me? How will my life change when the weight is off? Thank you so much for listening to this year's New Year's special of the Paleo Hacks show. I'm looking forward to 2016 with you all. ClarkDanger.com. If you want to get a hold of me, uh, let me know your thoughts on the show. I would love to interact with you. Put a lot of work and effort into this. Thank you to all 10 of my guests and to the other 62 or whatever that weren't on this show. Um, That just shows how much great content we have that we couldn't even fit into an hour. PaleoHacks.com is the place to be. Blog, recipes, articles. And if you do like this show, the only thing we really ask of you besides listening, thank you, is to go over to iTunes, give it a a five-star rating, and leave a little review so that others can see that you like the show. All right, that's it. I'm Clark. From me to you, stop settling, start living, and Happy New Year's.